You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 103 of the Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. David is out making another Maybelline commercial. Today, we are joined by Trevor Creighton, who is the project archaeologist at Butzer Ancient Farm. Thank you so much for joining us today, Trevor. How are you doing? I'm, I'm very well, thanks. Very well, thanks for asking, and, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Really excited to have you on today. And for our listeners, you probably heard the ad for Butzer Ancient Farm as you're coming in today. So we're super excited to have Trevor, one of the project archaeologists, come on and talk about this experimental archaeology project out in southern England. And so like real quick, Trevor, your accent doesn't sound too too English to me. No, no, my accent's Australia, uh, from Australia. And I, I just find myself here in sunny England enjoying the climate, trying to escape the sunshine as often as possible. <laughs> Excellent, man. So that's that's awesome. So kind of just getting into today's topic, right? So you're the experimental archaeologist at Butzer Ancient Farm. So what were your first experiences in archaeology growing up? We've only had one Aussie on the show so far. Now, is archaeology part of anthropology in Australia or is it history? Well, archaeology is a separate discipline in Australia and in the UK, separate from history and separate from anthropology. It's, it's a standalone discipline. Cool. So were you exposed to archaeology at like a, a very young age or was that something that kind of happened later in life? Well, a young age is a long time ago for me, but yeah, I, I, I had an interest in archaeology. And in fact, I passed up the chance to study archaeology on two occasions about 40 years ago. So clearly I had an interest then, even if my memory is not that good. But it took a very roundabout route to bring me back to it. Right. As we were, as we were talking with you a couple of weeks ago, you, you actually got an undergraduate degree in, in radiography. That's right. Yeah. And with diagnostic medical imaging at Riverina College for Advanced Education. So what what is radiography? Like what, what brought you to that originally? Well, when I was at school, uh, I had a really keen interest in science and I also had a big interest in photography as well as archaeology. And I decided I could study photography or I could study archaeology. And wisely, perhaps, I decided that I couldn't make any money in those things. I mean, how right was I? Um, so I thought I could kind of combine those two interests. You know, there's archaeology, bones, they go hand in hand. Science, radiography, they go hand in hand. It's kind of photography, put it all together and I get this, this career that seems to pay reasonably well and allow me to work kind of wherever I like. Just, it's a pretty crap job, but you know. And that, that job just involves, it's like taking pictures of bones, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Actually, it's, uh, you know, it's not a bad job, but I didn't like it. I don't know. I, sign me up because if you're exposed to a lot of harmful uh, rays all the time, you know, that sound, sounds like something I want to. I want to be a part of absolutely. No, we, we we get to tell people it's perfectly safe, then run behind a lead screen and sort of speak at it's <laughs> and saying it's fine, hold your breath. Excellent. And then so how long were you doing that before you decided to pursue an MA? And your MA is in like visual arts, right? That's so you right. go from radiography and undergrad and then you go to the visual arts. That's right. Uh, it took me about 10 years to, to sort of realize that I, I really didn't want to be there. So I ended up working as a photographer and worked my way into teaching photography at a place called the Canberra Institute of Technology. And simultaneously, I did an MA in, yeah, in visual arts, majored in photography. That was 
2000, so 20, 22 years ago. Understood. So from that, there is a logical connection here. Well, logical in terms of uh, my life. I ended up doing a PhD, which I, I hasten to add I never finished. You know, I split because of artistic differences, a lot like many bands in the 1970s. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I was doing a PhD at Southern Cross University in Australia. And visual arts is really highly theorised when sort of at an academic level. In fact, it's a lot like theoretical archaeology, same philosophers, Baudrillard, Heidegger, people like that, lots of fun reading there. And what I what I got really interested in was the, the way people make marks in the landscape, I mean kind of literally make marks in the ground, but also leave things like picnic shelters were a particular fascination of mine. So I lived in Australia at the time, and, and Australia is a kind of place that was uh, colonised or invaded by Europeans just over 200 years ago. And there's, I think, this really uneasy relationship between between European Australians and and the continent they live on. There was a um, there was an architectural historian who described Australians, uh, European Australians, as a group of people living on the veranda of a con- continent, looking out to sea and waiting for the boats to come and take them home. So, yeah, I think there's this really uneasy relationship between Australians and the place that we have, partly because most of the archaeology in Australia is is very old or it belongs to a culture which has been there for a very long time and it's it's kind of foreign to, to Europeans. And so the way we've kind of made a very an impression on our landscape is is kind of, I think, at odds with the landscape itself. So I ended up sort of if you like, photographing these sort of odd monuments that we'd left in the countryside in Australia. And so it was a sort of cultural geographical research that I was doing, which, yeah, which led me indirectly back to sort of contact with with archaeology. Gotcha. And like, I think the current understanding is that humans first arrived in Australia, like what, 40, 60,000 years ago? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, 60,000 years is, is the latest is the latest dating, cool. um, if you ask. Indigenous Australians, I'll tell you, they've been for, there forever, and you know I'm not going to argue with that either. Right? Yeah, I I love the dualities between Indigenous archaeology and or in in Australia and Indigenous archaeology in North America because like the same like what happened to the Pleistocene megafauna debates come up, and like it's like they're really cool analogies between the two geographic areas in terms of what happens to the environment at roughly around the end of the ice age and what happens to the Pleistocene megafauna. Definitely a topic we'll have to explore, explore in the future. But so you're, you're pursuing this PhD, right? At in visual arts. And then you, you go to, you go to Leicester, Leicester, Leicester. Le- I should Lester. know these words, but <laughs> less Lester, Lester. Yeah. 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 Excellent. After I sort of uh, disengaged from my PhD in a little while, I, I immigrated to the UK where I am now, and that's when, really by chance, I had the opportunity to to go to work at Butts Ranch and Farm in a slightly different capacity what I'm doing now, really on an education team, and I slipped really by sheer good fortune, I mean, partly through my own interest in archaeology and partly through, yeah, good fortune into the, the ultimately the job I'm doing now, which is working as an experimental archaeologist. I did 
did, by the way, end up studying archaeology as well. So, yeah, I have a master's from Leicester, which is L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R, and it's probably only one of a number of strange pronunciations that I might make this evening. I um, was on the <laughs> subway platform in London, and I was trying to get to Leicester Square, and I asked this lady can I get to Leicester Square? And she goes, Leicester. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah, sorry. That one. <laughs> it's very hard for Americans to pronounce. No, don't don't feel at all bad. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. The, I, I have a friend who, who lived in a place called Shrewsbury, sometimes called Shrewsbury, and he grew up there. And I said, uh, so how do you pronounce this place? And he said, well, if you're local, you pronounce it Shrewsbury or something along those lines. So it appears wow. to have three different and even the people who live there don't say the same thing. So, you know, we're all confused. Fair enough. Fair enough. So what, what brought you to, to the UK to begin with? Like, what was that? Like, that's, that's quite the move going from, you know, the Southern Pacific to the North Atlantic. What was that impetus? Because that's a big career and like life-changing move to go back to Britain. Yeah, in short, my wife, she is originally from, from um, England and her parents are here and uh, she wanted to come back and spend uh, more time with them after 26 years in Australia, I think it was. And yeah, after after dissociating myself from my PhD, I was at a loose end and so it seemed, yeah, it seemed like a great opportunity. I, I'd been here to Britain many times and, uh, you know, I really liked it and there were, you know, there were a lot of opportunities here that I wouldn't have in Australia and the reverse is true as well. But certainly this opportunity to be an experimental archaeologist was not one I was expecting nor even knew existed. So, yeah, I really lucked out. So your wife's the one that busted you out of the penal colony, huh? It, she is. Ooh. Yeah, I like to call <laughs> kind of prisoner repatriation scheme over here. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, <laughs> dude. Some of my ancestors made it to Australia, uh, not as voluntary passengers, let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a big cultural difference between Australia and the UK? Because I feel like there are some like similarities and things that they like and kind of cultural practices. But was it like a huge change culturally? No, it's probably about the easiest change you could make anywhere in the world because obviously there's a there's a cultural connection because most Australians would have some sort of some sort of I'll say British ancestry. I'll clarify that a little bit later on what British actually is. It's important to the archaeology. And I guess sense of humor is rather the same. This Australians tend probably to be a little bit more outgoing, particularly when kind of compared to maybe the south of Britain. So there is a, a kind of reserve but, you know, when you scratch the surface, people are very similar. So, yeah, it's a really easy, really easy kind of cultural transition. Weather transition, not so much so. I'd imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Since you did your archaeological education in the UK, is that – have you had a desire to learn more about, like, the Australian archaeological record or have you just kind of been focused in this particular time period in, in England with the Bronze and Iron Age? I had some contact with archaeology in Australia. So as I was saying before, I was interested in it, broadly speaking, and through this kind of cultural geographical link with the PhD I was doing and other other research, I, I got sort of 
really interested in, in Indigenous culture in Australia. And I, I also did some, some work for a few organisations connected to that. So I was kind of lucky in that I got, got some really privileged access to things. So I visited a lot of sacred sites and, uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but I visited some sacred sites and some great rock art sites and also kind of got a little bit of a flavour for some of the more subtle archaeology in Australia. And that I guess that um, really alerted me to the fact that the the relationship between European Australians and the way we kind of use the landscape and interact with it is just radically different from that of Indigenous Australians. So, yeah, I, I saw things, but I didn't understand them. And that, that's what I'd say. So I guess, you know, as a European, ultimately, it's easier for me to connect with European archaeology in one sense than, sure. than Australian archaeology. I think it's the same here for, um, like us. You know, I guess we're still kind of a British colony or where we have that history here but yeah it's like it's a vastly different archaeological experience when you're uh, like of european ancestry than indigenous here for sure and it's interesting to know it, it's that's reflected over there as well yeah i think there are a lot of parallels between australia and the united states kind of through i guess you'd say prehistory but, but also historically as well there are, yeah similar sort mm-hmm. of contact issues that we have with european and indigenous cultures and yeah I've, I think we've talked about this before with Maddie McAllister, who was on here before, but is the relationship between the local ad- indigenous folks and archaeology in Australia good? Short answer is no. Okay. It's been a really problematic relationship, particularly probably with anthropology, but because, you know, we, we have anthropologists who, are, as I said, are a separate, but of course, related discipline. But also, no, also archaeology. Actually, I won't say particularly anthropology. The relationship between Indigenous Australians and anthropology and archaeology has been bad and exploitative, I think. Certainly, certainly that's the Indigenous perspective, and I think they're justified in making that claim. That said, that relationship is changing. And I spoke to an Australian archaeologist recently who said her work was with communities. So a lot of Indigenous Australians, particularly who don't live in urban areas, will be in a will be in a community, if you like, which is a it may be a discrete set of land that they actually now own. Yeah, land ownership and title in Australia is quite difficult at times. I'm not talking obviously about the suburban setting, but in terms of who owns large tracts of Australia. But a lot of land in the last 40 years has been returned to Aboriginal people. So some archaeologists actually work with Indigenous Australians on at that community level. And the the Indigenous people will say, you can look at that, but you can't look at that. And, yeah, the woman I was talking to said, that's actually great. You know, that's a great relationship. It works for her. It works for archaeology. And the community she works with seems to be very accepting that that now – Anthropology and archaeology are not evil. They're not bad things. They don't. They can embrace them under their own terms. So the relationship, at least in some parts, is improving. Yeah, I read a lot of Aboriginal archaeology. Like to answer kind of Connor's question, like a lot of like the foundational text, like Indigenous methodologies, came out of an Indigenous New Zealander. So like the kind of Big areas for indigenous archaeology globally are New Zealand, Australia, and the United States and Canada. They're kind of the biggest producers of literature and theory on the on the subject. And it's been cool. There's like a lot of really cool analogies that go on between what's as Trevor, you know, you you alluded to, like 
the similarities in the colonization practice, the treatment of indigenous people, and how archaeology has reconciled that between the two continents has been very exciting, exciting to watch. Yeah, it's a, it's a work in progress, but at least in mm-hmm. some areas, it, it really is improving. And with that, we're going to go ahead and end segment one. This is a special four-segment episode of Life and Roads Podcast here with Trevor. And we're about to dive into Butzer Ancient Farm and talk about the Romans, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age. And we're going to, we're going to get into it for everyone. So uh, stay tuned. Welcome back to episode 103 of a Life in Ruins podcast. This is our special episode. I'm with Trevor Creighton of Butzer Farm. And we wanted to start this segment off by you kind of telling us what Butzer is and and when it began, if you don't mind talking about that. No, not at all. Butzer began really 50 years ago this year, in 1972. And it was set up with a grant by the Council for British Archaeology to study Iron Age farming techniques. The Iron Age in Britain was a bit under-researched, I think, so the the Council for British Archaeology were kind of interested in what what level of productivity can you return on on ancient species of crop, and that, that quickly also sort of transitioned into buildings as well. So it became a sort of a small functional farm that looked at, at cropping, animal husbandry, and also did experimental buildings. And... That kind of set the basis for ultimately expanding into the educational field using the archaeology that we'd learned, the buildings that we'd constructed as a kind of public outreach, as a way of educating the public about really the prehistory of Britain in particular. So what we do now is mainly what we concentrate on is making buildings and all of our buildings are Reconstruction is not a word any experimental archaeologist likes to use, but they are buildings that are our best guess, really, our best assessment on what archaeology in the ground represents in three-dimensional form. So we'll take whatever plan we can find in the archaeology of a building and try and reconstruct it. And down here, I'm in the south of England, our soil is all chalk. So really all you get are stains in the ground that tell you, well, there was a tree put in a hole here and over the last X thousand years, the tree kind of rotted away and left this stain in the ground. So we've got this post hole in a certain shape, these post holes in a certain shape. What can we make of that? You know, is it a house? Does it have a roof? And use any other clues you can find in the archaeology to think, you know, does it have a roof? Does it have a doorway? Was it actually a domestic dwelling or what might it have been? So it's kind of like, uh, you know, archaeology is is like doing a, a jigsaw puzzle without the box. We hardly have any of the pieces, let alone the picture on the box, but we still try and reconstruct things. And yeah, that's that's our mission. The reason for doing it really is to to try and, I guess you'd say, understand the life ways of people. We deal particularly with with prehistory. We actually do everything from the late Stone Age, the Neolithic, all the way through into the historical period, which is Roman to Anglo-Saxon. So that's a sort of period of about five thousand, five and a half thousand years. And, and what we're trying to do is. We're trying to get an understanding, for example, of how long the buildings last. So if we know how long a building lasts, we'll get an idea of a settlement size and the length of a settlement, and therefore we can get an idea of maybe the population of a settlement. And all our previous experiments on crops also tell us, you know, what what's the resource management of a settlement? So we can kind of extrapolate these ideas about how many people are 
are in Britain at any one point in time and, and what are they doing and um, what do their houses look like. So that's the experimental component. And the fact that we've got these really unusual buildings as a result of that means we can do a kind of a, a three-dimensional, a tangible archaeological education program. And that's now our bread and butter. The funding originally 50 years ago ran out. So to keep the place viable, we moved into public education. And now we have, on a good year, not a COVID year, but a good year, we have about 35,000 school children and about 20,000 other visitors from the public. And that's that's our main source of income. That's incredible. That's yeah. A lot of people. I mean, you mentioned something like, uh, you know, that I want to kind of touch back on how you're reconstructing these buildings based on post holes. And that's, you know, not just, you know, segmented to to architectural archaeology, right? Like even when we talk about atlatls or arrows, any type of technology where there's some component of degradable material, like most of you know, the paleo Indian record here in the United States, you're dealing with stone tools, yeah. but those were attached to atlatl darts or whatever. And we're all we're left with is the material aspects. And what you're talking about with those post holes is like, you're trying to reconstruct these houses based on their foundation. You have no idea what the walls are. Have you guys done like, you know, cause there's, if you look at the webpage, butzerancientfarm.co.uk, you can see beautiful photographs of the village that you guys have recreated and they have thatched roofs. Now, is that thatching based on maybe like pollen analysis that was done of some remains at the sites to see like, okay, at, at these, in these foundations that can find residues of some of these possible uh, plants that were used to, to thatch the roof? There, there are a few different clues, I suppose. And sometimes it's just guesswork. I'd probably take a step back, I think, to can I tell you where I am? Because that's that's a little bit of a that's a big part of the story, actually. So I I live, as I said, I live in a I live in a small visit village, and it's called Rowlands Castle. And Rowlands Castle is simultaneously in England, Britain, and the United Kingdom. This is important to the story. Stay with stay with me. So the part that I'll really talk about in the archaeology is Britain, and Britain is a single island which is off the the west coast of Europe. It's about it's about the size of North, North and South Carolina combined. It's about 80,000 square miles. Within that, there's, a, there's actually three separate countries, Scotland, Wales, and England. So it's a really culturally diverse place, and it's geographically diverse. So it's quite small, but very culturally and ge- geographically and geologically diverse. So if in some parts of Britain you get preserved archaeology that's quite sort of substantial. So if you've got good stone, for example, you will get preserved stone buildings, in some cases perhaps as much as 2,000 years old. But in my area, it's all chalk with a a bit of flint. So nothing that you can really easily build a durable structure from that's going to last in the archaeology. So, yeah, what what we are left with here is the – the really most sparse sort of archaeology about buildings you can imagine, particularly for prehistoric buildings. And so there some periods we deal with, you do have better evidence than others. So I'll, I'll cite the Iron Age, for example. We actually started with our focus on the Iron Age. And the Iron Age in Britain, unsurprisingly, is the time at which iron starts to appear in the archaeology. And it's about 800 BC to, you can actually date it to the coming of the Romans, which is 43 AD. So in that time slice, we'd start to get history towards the end of that. And of course, history is simply someone wrote it down and 
the Romans, bless them, wrote a bit of history. And one of the things the Roman tells us is that the British made roundhouses. So again, I'm generalising this island of Britain. There are a lot of people here, but in general, they made roundhouses. Tacitus, I think it is, tells us that the general trend was to use timber that hadn't been squared up. So in other words, timber in the round, often with bark on it. And one of the Roman historians says that they had thatched roofs. So we get in these very sparse references to Britain in the Roman history, actually, you get a clue. So we've got that data about prehistoric buildings there. When you go back in time, say, to the Bronze Age or the Neolithic, so I'm right, Bronze Age in Britain is about, about 2,500 BC up to, the, up to the Iron Age, so about 800 BC. The Neolithic is the period before that, so that winds back to about 4,500 BC. In those periods, obviously, we have less information. There's more degradation of the archaeology and no one wrote anything down. So you kind of have to make a lot of inferences You'll sometimes get useful pieces of information in the archaeology. So you might have, for example, these roundhouses I'm talking about, they're really typical of the British Bronze and Iron Ages, and they are, as the name suggests, roundhouses, although actually they're round structures. Some of them were probably houses. Some of them did other things, but they're very numerous. And often they're defined by a series of post holes in, in my part of the world, these, these stains in, these dark stains in white chalk. But around those, you'll often find a, a sort of a ditch that's been dug. So we, we think that what that is, is a, is a kind of drainage ditch. So that sort of gives us an idea that, you know, the, the walls are where the post hole stains are and this drainage ditch, ditch represents the overhang from the roof. Then the other things we can do are, yeah, look at the pollen record. So we'll look at the pollen record to go, okay, well, there's a lot of this species of tree around here. This species of tree works well for that. And there might be a lot of wetland. So there's a lot of, perhaps there's a lot of water read in prehistory. So that tells us, you know, because we have this other information about roundhouses from the late Iron Age, perhaps they used thatch roofs earlier on as well. So, yeah, there's a, there is a little kernel of information even in prehistory, but by and large, it's, it's really a best guess. But, yeah, drawing as much upon the archaeological record as we can to inform it. Of course. And you're also drawing on, because you mentioned this earlier, that Butster Ancient Farm also tackles the late Neolithic as well as the, the Bronze Age. So you've gave us dates for the Iron Age, 800 BC to precisely 43 AD. How long was the, uh, the Bronze Age in Britain? About... About 1,500, 1,700 years. Yep, that's about right. Got to I do the mental maths there. I've, I've got this wrong before, but yeah, it's about 1,700 years or so. Gotcha. So really significant. A lot of changes coming in at that point in time. Britain's only been settled permanently by humans for, um, well, for about the last 11,000 years or so. It was first inhabited uh, 900,000 years ago by humans, but of course, you know, ancestor or related species, not homo sapiens. But for the most of the rest of uh, 890,000 years, it was covered in ice or there was a lot of ice nearby. So it doesn't appear to have been much human activity at times, you know, when it warmed up. Yeah, permanent settlement here is really quite recent. What's the name of the sunken the sunken landmass that used to connect Britain with France? Doggerland. Doggerland. Doggerland, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Okay, sorry. I just, I, one of those no, things that I've always... That's great. I mean, yeah, Britain, again, for most of that 900,000 years, Britain was not an island. It was connected to what we now call mainland Europe by, uh, you know, 
more than a land bridge. It was just part of the landmass. And it wasn't until, really, it wasn't until after the, the very last gasp of the last sort of bit of the Ice Age, the Younger Dryas, that it became separated. So it, it appears gradually to have that uh, landmass called Doggerland gradually started to sink or get inundated. And then probably about 8,000 years ago, it seems to have been almost wiped out by a, about 8,500 years ago by a tsunami. But what's important about that is that in in this sort of period of permanent settlement is that Britain wasn't always isolated. So what that meant was that even through the Mesolithic, through the, the earliest settlement here, which is the you know, hunter-gatherer so-called phase, through to the Neolithic, that landmass, that sort of Britain was getting gradually separated from Europe. So people never, I think, never lost the memory. They knew Europe was there. So you find through the Mesolithic, through the Neolithic, through the Bronze Age, through the Iron Age, there is lots of contact with Europe, mainland Europe. So it's not as though Britain is this sort of isolated place out in the ocean unknown to everybody. And Yeah, there's a surprising amount of contact between here as far away at least as the Mediterranean, even in the Bronze Age. So do you use evidence from, say, these surrounding countries to help you inform how you reconstruct these buildings? You're not just using evidence from Britain itself because of this obvious connection to mainland Europe. Do you use other lines of evidence, say, from France or from other places like that? Generally speaking, no. There's there's a peculiarity in Britain. These roundhouses are quite peculiar to Britain and Ireland um, during the, the Bronze Age to the Iron Age and beyond. To the best of my knowledge, there are very few roundhouses found in, say, northern France, none in northern Germany or Scandinavia. So the nearest points to Britain, which are you know, northern France, northern Germany and through into Scandinavia, there are few, if any, roundhouses there. So that's the strange thing. We know there are cultural connections, but why is this architecture really different over here? Is it because we're not looking in the right right places or is it because there is you know, something else culturally going on? Are we, I don't know, connected with other areas? We certainly get roundhouses in Brittany, which is kind of northern France. You get it in Galicia, which is northern Spain. You get them in the Mediterranean. So, yeah, that kind of... That uh, vector of communication is a really puzzling one. So on the one hand, yep, trade goods, we know metals, we know objects come in from northern Europe, but these house styles are different, which means for our buildings we can't really use a lot of information from from Europe, which often has better preserved archaeology, particularly on the coastal fringe where you've got a lot of really nice anoxic mud that preserves things well. We can get a bit out of that, but for our buildings not so much so until we get to the late Iron Age where there seems to be more of a connection. So we can get a few tips on decoration in the late Iron Age because there's actually some surviving decoration from somewhere in France. I can't remember exactly where. And, of course, once we get into the Roman period, then we can get quite a lot of clues and there's a lot more material that survives because, A, the Romans tended to build in, in kind of stone with mortar and, B, they were really good kind of consumers and they made a lot of junk gets left over so we can find it. But, yeah, in terms of the prehistoric stuff, unfortunately there's there's only a limited amount that we can infer about buildings from Northern Europe. And kind of just bringing us back to the isolation of, of Britain from, from Europe, I mean, you can still see 
like the cliffs of Dover from France. Like it's still, there's parts of France that you can still see England, right? It's the, through yeah. the, is that the Pas de Calais, like the shortest distance or is that the longest distance? Uh, yeah. Calais to Dover, I think is about the shortest. Distance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. The only reason I know this is like World War II knowledge of like trying to fool Hitler yeah. and where we were going to land. And that's, that's the extent yeah. of my, of my European geography is <laughs> World War II nerd stuff. <laughs> Well, it's it's good good information from a very unfortunate time, but you know interconnectedness is really quite surprising because one of the great things about Britain, as far as people who were making bronze was concerned, is it had both copper, which is the main ingredient of bronze, and tin, which is as an additive of about sort of eight to twelve percent. It it gives you really the best bronze, hardest bronze. There are a number of alloys you could describe as bronze or copper alloys, but Copper and tin is really good, and Britain is unusual in having both. So it was a sought-after location, and it was exporting bronze. And one of the one of the interesting things was because of chemical signatures in in the sort of ores and in the metals, you can get a pretty good idea of where it comes from. So Cornwall is a, a county in the far west of Britain, and it's a really good su- supplier of tin. And the chemical signature of Cornish tin has turned up in places like modern-day Israel as having been exported there about 3,200 years ago. So that's the sort of level of interconnectivity. It's not just straight across the channel, which is only it's only about 20, 22 miles across there at the narrowest point to France. But we're talking about a, a journey of many thousands of miles and almost all of it by sea. Didn't the Greeks or the Romans call Britain Tinland? Rather, Britain might mean Tinland or something like that. I think that's right. Yeah, I think there is a, a reference to that. Um, well, that's yeah. Oh, cool. That like blew my mind as well, a kid. Yeah, yeah. I don't. the The name Britain, I think, comes from. I think it's Latin. It could be Greek term that's Britanni. I'm not sure. That may mean painted people, but I'm not too sure about that. Sounds right. I think on that note, we'll end this segment here and we will talk more about the next segment, doing some more experimental archaeology and continuing this conversation about tin and all other things bronze. So (laughs) this is episode one of three of a Life in Ruins podcast. Welcome back to episode 103 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We're here with Trevor Crichton and we are talking about now experimental archaeology, which I guess I could define it, but do you want to go ahead and define it in the, I guess, your your best description of it? Okay, yeah. Experimental archaeology is just a process of designing experiments to test archaeological theories. So, yep, you've got a theory. We'll build it and test it. That was way more succinct than I would have said it. So I'm glad I asked you. (laughs) Yeah. So what kind of stuff do you guys do at Butzer, experimental archaeology wise? Well, most of our work is in buildings. We do a little bit of metallurgy as well, but most of it's in in buildings. And yeah, we, we take archaeology and put it into three dimensions. So once we've got this idea about, okay, we've identified a need, we need to have a new building of X date. We then identify the archaeology. Now, that's a really interesting building with some, or that's a really interesting plan with some interesting information, or in some cases, it's actually a lack of information. So, again, using any other data we can bring to hand, like pollen records, any carbon 14 dates, or any evidence of remaining timbers, we'll go and source. Our best guess or or what we know to have been the timber that was used for certain things. So all of our buildings have timber in them. Um, With the exception of a Roman villa, which we have, everything is essentially built from timber 
you could say timber, dirt and straw. So that's what we need to source. So we'll source what we believe to be appropriate species of timber. And then where our archaeological plan says, okay, we've, we've got a post hole here of this size, we put a post in there of that size hopefully of the right timber. Once the archaeological evidence runs out, you know, once we've put all the posts in the post holes, then we have to then we have to speculate. We have done quite a lot of of these buildings over the years, particularly of the roundhouses that I mentioned before. So we have kind of ways that we have done things which we think are very logical and often we'll follow that. But sometimes we try and mix it up because we are doing an experiment. We have to remind ourselves that just because we built this thing before, it didn't mean that was the correct way of building it, didn't mean it's the only way of building it. So each time we try and push the envelope a little bit more. Sometimes we get a bit of a clue to say beyond our posts what the walls are made from. So a lot of our buildings have what's called a wattle and daub wall, and a wattle wall is really just a just a woven wall. It's a bit like having a huge basket. Say we've got a roundhouse. It's about an, a basket with a seven meter diameter, and it is really the walls are just basketry. That's the wattling. On top of it. We put daub, and daub is a mixture of usually a, hopefully a clay soil. Clay binds quite well but with soil. And things like hair or straw, they're sort of additives that helps it, helps it not to crack or to crack less often. So, uh, and then that's bound with water. So what you end up with is a composite material, a bit like a really primitive form of fibreglass or carbon fibre where you've got this fairly brittle material like mud that insulates very well and a sort of ephemeral material like straw or hair that acts as the binder and you put them together and you've got really very serviceable material that works like plaster and that you do find that in the archaeology as well it's really telltale signs it, it gives you the impression of these uh, these bits of woven wood in the background so those are the sort of typical ways that we'll make a wall on top of that we'll put a roof with a roundhouse it tends to be a conical roof because the simplest and we think the best way to make a roundhouse is to basically have a drum with a little cone on top. That's that's what these roundhouses are. So, yeah, we, the base is a drum and the top is a cone and we'll usually thatch that. Um, as we mentioned before, there's, there's good evidence for thatching and thatching is just applying something like a long straw from a cereal crop or a water reed or sometimes it's a sort of bushy crop like a heather and effectively just fastening that to the roof as a, as a waterproofing system. In other buildings that we have, we have some Anglo-Saxon buildings, there is no standing evidence from these buildings. So they date from the, the sort of post-Roman era, which is about from AD 400 through to, in our case, through to about seven or 800 AD. And they're really quite enigmatic, these buildings. They, they appear and they don't look like much that came before them. So they appear to belong to these Anglo-Saxon invaders, people who come from northern Germany, what is now northern Germany and Denmark and that sort of area there. They seem to come in in fairly large numbers in around AD 400 to AD 500. It's really quite debatable how large that number of people is and how much warfare, there certainly was warfare, but how much interaction there was with the uh, with the Britons, the people who were here before, despite the fact that they were colonised by Rome, they, they remained Britons. But there's certainly conflict and we see this new style of architecture for which we have no standing parallels. 
So we have to infer a lot of things just out of the dirt archaeology. Again, we're looking at a series of post holes in the ground. They can tell us certain things about the roof. They can tell us certain things about the style of carpentry, a surprising amount, actually, but Again, we're flying blind. So we, again, if we've got the plant record, tells us they have a certain amount of t- a certain type of timber in abundance. We'll use that timber. In the case of our site, we've actually built two Anglo-Saxon houses. They're both based on almost identical archaeology, and they look quite different. And that's a way of us being able to test our theories about how they might have been, see how they work, see how they last, and also to show the public that we don't know what we're doing. In, in essence, we don't know what we're doing. We are doing experiments. This is testing some assumptions. And that allows the visiting public then to be archaeologists themselves because their opinion on which one is right and which one is not, which one is better and which one is worse, is as legitimate as mine because I'm old, but I'm not that old. So I never saw one. So yeah, that's sort of, that's I guess that's the cycle of taking the archaeology, then gathering the materials. Of course, we have to gather a workforce together, which is often staff, usually mixed with volunteers. So it's all very much internal. We do get a, a few specialist craftspeople to come in with certain, uh, certain techniques, but usually just to demonstrate them. So in most cases, we do pretty well everything ourselves Ourselves, and I say by ourselves, I mean our staff and a fantastic group of volunteers that we work with. So it's a little bit, a little bit seat of the pants at times, but that that's what makes it so exciting. Yeah, that sounds that sounds very interesting because of the variability and things like that. And do you normally try to replicate methods of creating that stuff too, or do you use modern equipment? It's a bit of both. Time is usually kind of uh, somewhat of a pressure. So, you know, if we've identified we need a building, we want to get it built in a timely fashion. So what we do is always do a proof of concept. So a couple of years ago, we built this wonderful Neolithic house, this late Stone Age house from about from about 3,800 BC or thereabouts from archaeology quite nearby. So what we did with the first phase of that is we built the first part of the mainframe of that building with all reproduction Neolithic tools. And the great thing is we know the Neolithic toolkit. Being stone, it survives really well. And in fact, in some cases, timber as well, even bone. So we've got a really good idea of what the, the Neolithic toolkit is. We also have surprising amount of information about sort of Neolithic, so late Stone Age carpentry from some amazing finds in Germany. So they were really proficient carpenters. We're not. But what we did was say, okay, let's imagine we're the sort of community of people who are not specialist builders. You know, we imagine in Britain in 4,000, 3,800 BC, there's probably not uh, a builder that you can phone and say, look, I need a house, come and build it for me. So we kind of have this imaginary community that we form. We say, all right, what can we do with these tools? We've got this idea about how this thing was built. We've got this idea about how we can build it. The question is, can we do it with the appropriate tools? So once we prove the concept that, yes, we can do it with the appropriate tools, we'll substitute modern tools for ancient tools. Generally, though, that's not yeah, that's not like large-scale earth-moving equipment. It's fairly simple power tools and often, if possible, hand tools like so steel axes instead of stone axes. And for erecting these buildings, our preference is very much human labour. Because again, you know, if we're saying, well, okay, we've got a community who don't have access to large earth moving equipment or cranes, we need to be able to put this up. Because if we can't put it up, then there's a puzzle we're not answering with this structure. 
I could kind of speak to that a little bit. I'm part of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma, and we're building new earth lodges. Like our structures, these large by they're like 60 foot in diameter structures. And the tribe is building some new ones. And of course, we used to come from these towns that had like dozens, if not hundreds of them. And it's costing, I think we had a fundraise. They're fundraising like 60,000 US dollars for the backhoes, the smiths and the lumber just to make four of them. Wow. You know, and it's like, huh, it makes you appreciate like the level of craftsmanship and the ability for people to create these things when in today it takes a lot more money or, or time to create something that people used to do all the time in the past. So like kind of hearing you talk about this, it was just like going through my head of all the stuff that we've been working with in the tribe within these past couple of weeks of just trying to recreate these, our houses from, you know, 300 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, we had a project recently where we worked with a, an organisation called Operation Nightingale. And Operation Nightingale is a, a charity that works to help rehabilitate particularly uh, military veterans but also serving personnel who've been injured or traumatised. And we use them as our sort of volunteer labour force. And we we managed to get some funding, which was about, let's say, about the equivalent of about $12,000. And we built an entire six and a half metre round experimental Bronze Age roundhouse just with that amount of money based on having access to really good labour. And in, in, in so doing, one of the interesting things we found, and I don't know if this is sort of parallel to your experience, but one of the things we found is that, okay, we started as a sort of disparate group of people, but we ended up as a little community at the end of it, which was, you know, more than just a group of co- co-workers, which you can never kind of, you're never on safe ground of saying, you know, this is how people behaved in the past. But it's just so tempting to kind of see that kind of community building, I suppose, through through this kind of shared experience of making a shelter. And, and the other thing was, of course, we started with, I think we had about 26 or 27 veteran volunteers and we had about seven civilian volunteers as well and, and us. So we started with, you know, about 35 or 40 people in the whole team and we ended up with 40 experimental archaeologists because everybody in that process had something to give to it. They were getting insights as they went along, which is not only great from, you know, from their perspective, it's fantastic from our perspective because, you know, none of us is all seeing, all knowing about the past. So those you know, being able to do things on a shoestring is actually really quite good because you have to be inventive, innovative, and everybody gets this real sense of, of ownership and input as well as a sense of, you know, what is this thing we're building? What what might it be? And, and you know, what might it mean? And, and meaning is important as well as just the structure itself. Right. And like Amish communities in the United States, when they have like, you know, barn raising events, like it's not just, okay, everyone gets together to put up the barn and finish it. It's a whole community event revolved around this this mm-hmm. community building. And in a larger sense of like, you know, they have a lunch around it and it's like a whole thing. And, and you know, you can see those when the community has to get together to right, build one of these houses, you know, that, that has to be a community decision, right? Like if you just want to move in with your new bride to a new house, it's not just going to be you building it. Like the community all has to get behind to help you to start your life. And it's really cool kind of thinking like conceptually of how these communities interacted with one another and how there was far more intersectionality between people's lives in, in a single community than there is today. Yeah. And like adding to that is like, you can understand how these big projects get 
completed like the the pyramids and things like that when you have these strong community binding things and you can create larger communities and say if there's religion or if there's ritual involved too you can really kind of think and conceptualize how you're building mind temples how you're building say huge southwest structures and things like that i really it really just it clicks in my head and makes me think that you know it's definitely not aliens and yeah. it's very possible for humans to do something like this yeah, we actually couldn't help but make that kind of Amish analogy of the barn raising. It, it just and it just seems so natural. The whole thing, this kind of bonding and this yeah, this shared drive just seems so natural. And one of the really interesting things happened after we kind of finished this building. So we now we now gather in there um, fairly regularly, and some guy brings in uh, Dave. He brings in some potatoes and we roast them over the fire and eat potatoes in kind of a communal meal. But one of the things that became really obvious from the moment that we more or less finished this building was this urge to decorate it. And again, do you know this uh, phenomenology? I don't even like saying it, but this idea about kind of experiential archaeology, how you can kind of access the mind of the past through experience, and that's kind of dangerous ground that many archaeologists are not happy with. But when you're actually involved in one of these projects, it's really hard not to kind of feeling yourself, okay, this this is more than just we needing a building here. This is a, There's a fundamental human urge going on under there. Now, yeah, we can't add that back into the archaeological record as a fact. But it's very satisfying as someone who's a practitioner doing it and thinking, wow, you know, maybe I'm contacting people from the past in this way. Absolutely. I think it's really cool what you guys are doing there. Looking at, because we've been talking for like over about a month, a little over and diving into Butzer Ancient Farm and just the things you guys are able to pull off. It's, you know, it's not just like some... I don't know. I guess like we here in the United States, big, big for us are like frontier towns, like wild west towns where, you know, you have a bunch of actors running around. But even then, it's not you guys are literally building this community from scratch and working with the archaeological record and to educate. Like what is, I guess, on this topic of of public outreach, like what has been the reaction to the English community to this Iron Age village? Yeah, it's been really positive. I mean, we are not uh, we're not up there with Stonehenge as a visitor attraction, but we have we have a niche audience and a lot of people who know us. And yeah, it's it's a super positive experience. And to be honest, I'm often quite surprised at how much people connect with it and how uh, even hardened archaeologists will sometimes spend a night over sort of staying in one of the buildings and say, you know, I can't help but think I'm actually in the Iron Age. And that's not, you know, that's not what academic archaeologists would normally say. So it is, uh, yeah, really a remarkable place and people really connect with it. We've got quite a, you know, a diverse community of people who are, have a really uh, strong association with the place from academia all, all the way through to people who I guess you'd say sort of new age lifestyles and things like that. It seems to ring a lot of bells right. for a lot of people. I think it's interesting that you guys are like meeting in this this Iron Age village, but you guys are eating potatoes from the new world that don't arrive until like 800 years later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some, of the, some of the walls of this uh, Bronze Age building uh, are made of earth. So they're rather experimental because... We had a piece of archaeology that had no evidence for walls, so it had posts, so we kind of knew it was a roundhouse. So we made these walls, which are of earth, which, you know, are going to degrade into just like the geology around them. And we built a sort of late 
towards winter, so nothing was going to sprout. So there were a few people thinking, well, we better stabilise these loose, loose earth walls by putting some plants in them. And someone put a tomato in there. I thought, well, no, we, we can't really have that in the Bronze Age, I'm afraid. So they were crestfallen when I threw it away. <laughs> Understood. We're allowed to eat potatoes in there. Of course. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and uh, wrap up this segment. We'll be right back with segment four with Trevor Creighton here on episode 103 of Life Ruins Podcast. Stay tuned. And welcome back to segment four, episode 103. We're still here with Trevor. Very happy to have him here. So the more that we dive into Butzer Ancient Farm, like the more awestruck I've become at all the different things that you guys do there. It's not just, hey, this is Roman age Britain. This is how they did things. Iron age Roman, you know, the whole thing. But it's experiential. Like you guys provide a, a, you know, almost like a Disney World experience. It's not just the tangible that exists at Butzer. It is the ambiance. It is it is the environment that which you create. And could you please speak to more about how you and your team there create this lived environment at Butzer? Yeah, the, I, you know, obviously the first step is the physical, so we build these buildings. But the, the the thing that that allows us to do is have this immersive environment that's suggestive of the past. If we've done you know our best job, then we've got a building that is a reasonable guesstimate of what life was or, or what a building was like in the past. We, we certainly almost never build something that was exactly like a building we can never possibly have seen. But what that gives us is this sort of tangible three-dimensional environment in which people can be engaged. So a large part of our mission really is public archaeology, you know, the outreach to the general public to, to tell people why archaeology is important, why the past is important. And I think a lot of public archaeology is actually done on things like dig sites. And so I always picture someone standing in a trench pointing at little flags on the ground saying, well, that's a, that context over there. I put three part shards of pottery out of there, and that was really interesting. So there's, if you're interested in archaeology, that's really interesting, or if you know something about it. But if you just sort of think, oh, I'd like to know more about the past, then I don't want to kind of denigrate that kind of public archaeology. But, but I think what we can do is connect with people a little bit more easily. So people can, you know, they can come into our spaces. They can they can get a sense of, well, people in the past were not just kind of grubbing around in the dirt, living in caves. They were ambitious. They were capable. They could build things. We can give people then a little taster of information and we can tell people, you know, what was unique about the late Stone Age, what was unique about the Bronze Age, where it occurred and when it occurred in Britain. But from there, from that point on, it's then down to the to the people who are visiting us. So if we're doing our job right, they are the ones who become the archaeologists because in those spaces, those immerse, immersive spaces that imperfectly represent the past, that what we hope is they will take the little bit of information and the clues we give them in that environment and think more deeply about the past, get an appreciation, as I say, for the ambition of people in the past and start to sort of even realise what it was like to live without electricity, what it was like to live without mobile phones, without healthcare of a sort of recognisable kind. Or on the other hand, to think about how simple it was, you know, how not having social media, maybe life, maybe life's a little bit less complicated. So mm. it's, a, it's a conduit to more direct connection to the past, which I think should stimulate 
intellectually people thinking, but also I think it's also a way to value the past. And at the very least, that should mean let's not bulldoze everything around us. Let's sort of think some of these things are worth keeping and some of these things are worth studying. And I think ours being a, a really tangible environment is, is almost a unique or one of a very few range of places that can do that. It is a really unique place for sure. Like just hearing what you're saying and looking at the pictures, because I mean, Carlton just spoke of one. There's not many places like that in the States, mostly because we don't have uh, like a European prehistory here. We do have pre-contact Indigenous Americans and we have like replica roundhouses. There's some replica villages, but nothing like, you know, that or to that extent where it's like a community based thing that I know of. Carlton, maybe you do. I was thinking like the closest thing we might have ha- have is like Williamsburg and Jamestown. But even then they're on but a different level like, because yeah. like it's they're historical and we know how they built the things, what they were doing. We have the records where it's like, you know, you do have historical documents with the Romans, but as you said, they're just so scant in descriptions of native Britons and how they were living. And so, yeah, like I've struggled. We don't have a place that encapsulates like 10,000 years of prehistory uh-uh. or history and prehistory. Like we don't, we don't have that in one central location that is easy to access. I mean, I think we have like disparate pieces of that in different parts of the state, but like nothing that's like, Hey, we're going to do this all in one place and really try to reconstruct it because it, it would be fascinating to see that, you know, roundhouses do some Mesa Verde, you know, things like that. But we, we just don't have a place for it. Yeah. And like one of my favorite aspects of like American, or I guess pre-contact Americas is like just Eastern Woodlands longhouses, just how big they were how they're just made of completely natural material. And I was like wondering when I was visiting one uh, recently when I was in New York, like why am I so like attracted to these things? Like they're just, I guess, cause it's natural and stuff like that, but diving into it, like great apes specifically are the only primates that make nests. So it's like when you step inside something like a bronze age thing and like the community builds it together, it's like a very like you know, human thing to have a structure and you can see how it's built. We're kind of disconnected from that with contracting and, you know, massive construction on houses. Like it's just something that happens, you know, I don't know. I saw like at at Meadowcroft Rock Shelter, they have like a indigenous village type thing present. Like they have like the palisade wall, but it's small. But even then it's not like indigenous people in Pennsylvania talking about it. You know, it's not you know, the people that are right. representing this this woodland period village aren't aren't indigenous themselves. So there's even that level of disconnect where you guys at Butzer are like, we are you guys are the Britons to answer Monty Python, you know, like you guys <laughs> you guys are the ones, you know, you guys have that. <laughs> you know, so you so you have that where you could sit there like this is this is your history right in front of you. Like this is how your ancestors so long ago did this. And this is how how we lived at that time period and how things changed between the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and how the Roman intrusions interacted with with the space and how you know you have that ability to connect people there whereas you know some of these places that we have in the states you have that disconnect and and that experience of that's other that's the other those are the people that used to live here being told by the people that didn't live here right yeah i actually i think there's a surprising level of 
political intrigue in archaeology in Britain, which is is not dissimilar to, to, say, the United States or Australia, but it's a lot less visible. So archaeology can get kind of weaponized, as it's been described, in political debates, and it has been quite recently. So we have a, a, a mission to make sure that we're being inclusive and not sort of me saying, these are my ancestors, which means they might not be yours. And there's another great lesson that we can actually take directly from archaeology is not about this is a sort of single descent to a kind of modern Britishness, but in fact, even in the last 11,000 years, it's waves of groups of people, some of whom have stayed, some of whom have been in conflict over thousands of years that has made this sort of melting pot of humans. And I don't particularly like Roman Britain, I have to be honest. You know, it's the most divisive civilization, at least up until about 1700. But there's one particular object from Roman Britain that I love, which is a gravestone, a tombstone, you could say. It's called a stela. And it's by a, a dedication, a really beautiful dedication by a man called Barates, I think his name was, to his wife who had died. Her name from memory was Regina Cachavalanus. So we know from Barate's biography that he was Syrian. Regina Cachavalanus is un- unquestionably a Briton, probably a freed slave. He didn't need to put that up and he didn't need to put such an eloquent message. He did it, you know, we can presume out of love. And so I think, I think we are very careful to stress that, you know, we are not Britons. We live in a country called Britain that has this really polyglot, amorphous history of all sorts of people of all sorts of types, which continues to the present day. So I think actually that's one of the great things we can do through these buildings because the buildings that we build change dramatically over time, and that's great because it means that there are cultural differences and social differences and sometimes differences in people who are building them. So that's actually a really important message that we can we can also tell through these, these dis- disparate buildings. Damn, I don't know what to say. Yeah, well said. Well said. <laughs> yeah, that was great, man. I think taking like a, a slight pivot, could you kind of explain to our listeners what Butzer Plus is and how they can get access to something like that? Yes, I can do that. We're a really great site to visit, obviously. Great site to be in. As I said, we get about 55,000 people a year, but it's a big world. And I'm speaking to you in the States, so it's not easy for you to visit. And we've had quite an impact with, with COVID-19 restrictions in the last year. So we've we've developed a platform called Butza Plus, which is an online platform. It's a, a, a subscription channel on Vimeo, which allows people through a subscription to kind of get regular updated slices of life at, at Butza. So obviously, it's a way to diversify our income stream, but also it's a way to open our doors to a much bigger world. So the the sort of themes we tackle are archaeological. So we have regular talks, sometimes with staff, about what we're doing with our experimental builds. And very often we'll get some guest archaeologists or others who work in other other fields of archaeology. These are not really pitched at an academic level. They're a popular level, but they're not a dumbed-down level. And I've done a few of them where I've sort of interviewed a couple of people who've who've come to site. I've absolutely been amazed at what they have to tell me about their area of speciality and what it's telling them. And not because they're telling me about isotope analysis, but because they're telling me about, look, we've got this evidence to say these people did this, which I think we can all connect with, you know, what – 
when we can get this fine-grained detail about what people did in the past is absolutely fascinating. So yeah, Butter Plus is becoming a really good a good platform for kind of getting us out there. And and some of the clips are really more about tranquility. One of the things that we love about working in the place we do is we're kind of set in a very rural landscape. So we're we're in this little valley surrounded really by surrounded by agriculture and trees. And it is genuinely a great aspect of the place to work in. You know, even when the day is not going so well, you can work, walk out the door. I call them site inspections, which uh, I guess I hope my boss doesn't listen to this. It's basically me just sort of skiving off and walking around the place just to kind of de-stress. And I know from what people tell me, visitors tell me, that that's, that's the experience they get. So what we're trying to do is kind of package that up as much as possible in just some of these nice little pleasant segments, which if you can't be there in reality, at least you can get a slice of it in cyberspace. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So for folks who are interested in that and they're super high quality videos. Yeah, so please check them out. How far from like Heathrow would it be to get there? Hour and a half, right? That's what we figured out. An hour and a half from Heathrow. Yeah. Okay. So for Americans listening, that's like an hour and a half from Maine, London, um, or like the airport in London. Yeah, we're about- I think that's the biggest one you got, right? Yeah, that's right. Heathrow's uh, near London's main airport. Gatwick is another one near London. So we're about seventy-five miles from either of those or those airports, and on on quite a main road. So it's not a hard place to get to. Actually, you can package a trip to Butzer and Stonehenge fairly comfortably in a, in about a day and a half. I just throw that in there. I'm like already planning a trip, man. I'm trying yeah. to figure out my my UK archaeology tour, and Butzer is definitely going to be on there for a couple of days. So the amount of stuff that I've been talking about, um, the amount of opportunities that you guys offer for anyone, it's not. Just just come check us out. Like you guys have workshops all the time. You can you can make your own bronze sword or bronze axe at Butzer, your own jewelry, meditate, and learn like ye old English with is she a linguistic anthropologist or a linguist? She's a linguist. Yeah, and all right. She really works more with old Welsh and old Irish. And, yeah, and- so not ye old English, yeah. My bad. No, no. Uh, old English is a, yeah, it's an unusual language, it's a Germanic language. And it, at first glance, nothing like modern English. But yeah, she works more with Old Irish and Old Welsh, but they look, in, if, you know, a lot of people probably don't realise that there are different languages spoken in Britain. So one of which is Welsh. Scots Gaelic is another language. And there's a small group of people who speak Cornish, but these languages all kind of predate this sort of Anglo-Saxon invasion. In fact, the clue is in the name. England is about two-thirds of the island of Britain, and England is, of course, Angoland, and English is Anglish. So these Anglo-Saxons who come in about 1,600 years ago kind of give us the modern language and give us the name of, of England, which separates Britain out into these three places. But our language now, English, looks, at first glance, looks nothing like, say, Welsh or Irish, which is also a related language. But she shows us that they are related. They're actually quite closely related, all from the same kind of underlying Indo-European family of languages. But it's so much fun. It's just so much fun. And it's just, you know, it's another way that we've got this great immersive environment, but you've got these these multiple conduits to, to sort of trying to better understand the past. And language is a fantastic one. 
Absolutely. Well, it's been fascinating having you on, Trevor. Like, really excited about the work that you're doing at Butzer, as well as all the opportunities and education that you guys are providing to the public. And we're really hoping for our audience that you guys please check out not only their website, which will be in, in the show notes down below, but also donate or subscribe to Butzer, Butzer Plus. You guys also have a blog, Butzer Blog. Also, we'll put down below to see kind of some of the things that you guys are doing. Like, top one, building an Iron Age toilet. I imagine that's for our archaeologists out there out in the field. This might be practical for you. Yeah, that's a practice. Absolutely, man. So what Don't are sit we- on that. Yeah, right. So I guess right before we end the show, Trevor, what are a couple sources, books, articles, videos that you'd recommend for anyone interested in, you know, Iron Age, Britain or Butzer Farm? Most of our stuff on Butzer Ancient Farm is now out of print. But Roman Britain, I'd recommend just looking up an author called Mary Beard. She does a lot of really interesting stuff. Actually, for prehistoric uh, Britain, there's it's a slightly older book, but it's still really readable by a guy called Francis Pryor, P-R-Y-O-R, and it's called Britain BC. The other one I'd recommend is on the Anglo-Saxons. Oh, there's one called the Anglo-Saxon World. So that's that's uh, that's a bit more of a tome. It's a bit of a harder read. If you want a little bit more of a smattering of, of Britain, AD from the Romans on. Francis Pryor has also done a book called Britain AD. So yeah, there there are a few good things and they'll all have references in them. So if you get really enthused, you can go down that rabbit hole of uh, specialization. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much for having me. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we'll have um, the contact information for Butzer Ancient Farm in the show notes down below. So your guys' Instagram account is at Butzer underscore ancient underscore farm. And so that will be down below. You guys have some pretty interesting videos on, on there as well. And please head on to the website to find all the specifics as to how you guys can get in contact with them, check out their events, figure out where they are, and how to best support this amazing um, experimental archaeological locality. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And because this is a life in ruins, we have to ask you a very, very important question. So if you had the chance to do it all over, would you still choose to reconstruct and live a life in reconstructed ruins? Yeah. I I don't think I would change a thing about my past. Even, even the decision not to study archaeology 40 years ago, Maybe it was a good thing because I'm doing exactly what I want to do now. And whatever got me here, I uh, I thank it. Excellent. Well, everyone, we awesome. just interviewed uh, Trevor Creighton, who is the project archaeologist at Butzer Ancient Farm. Hey, guys, you know what time it is. It's time for me to ask you to rate and review the podcast, specifically on Apple and Spotify. You know, send us an email, leave us a comment, but specifically review us on Apple and Spotify. After you go and check out Butzer Farms on, you know, the website, Hop on over to our uh, podcast and just go ahead and give us a rate and review. Appreciate it. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. And everybody, it's your favorite Easter egg of the episode. Connor, what do you have for us today for your joke? This one's painful. They're all painful, buddy. (laughs) Uh, Most people are shocked when they find out I'm not an electrician. Is it?
That's Thank it, you. I guess, right? That's it. That's it. That was All great. Right. Awesome. Thank you, Connor, as always. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor's just like, I don't know what to do with these guys. All right. With that, we are out. <laughs> This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.